welcome to Queers on Film, a podcast where a different guest each week picks their queer film of choice to watch and discuss. For the sake of this podcast, a film doesn't have to be explicitly queer as long as it fulfills one or more of the following criteria. It has to either have one or more queer characters, can be viewed through a queer lens, or is particularly relevant to the guest's queer journey or experience. My name is Felix Kingsley, and I use they, them pronouns, and I have uh, co-hosting this week, Aaron. Hi, I'm Aaron, and my pronouns are he, they. And then guesting this week uh, to discuss the the music video, right? It's the music video to My Own Private Idaho, right? Is that correct? Or is it the movie? Oh, the movie. Okay, we have Kai. Hello. My name is uh, Kai, and my I guess my pronouns are uh, they, she. Well, so I finished watching this movie right before we started recording, and I will say, as the resident actually diagnosed with narcoleptic in this group, <laughs> uh, I fell asleep directly afterwards. <laughs> but uh, why did? Uh, but I'm I'm excited to talk about it. I've seen it before. This is um, my second time seeing it. Why did you choose this movie? Uh, so it's it's honestly one of my favorite films of all time. Uh, I. I, for a number of different reasons, uh, thinking about what you were saying at the beginning of the uh, of the podcast about uh, when you're selecting or, or those who are selected to be part of this podcast, I think it was a huge part of my my journey um, into mm-hmm. when I was growing up, uh, kind of figuring out figuring out who I who I am, who I was, who I am, and in general, I'm a I'm quite a big fan of American indie '90s queer cinema. And so, Mm -hmm. and I was very fortunate in that uh, in my undergraduate career at UNC Chapel Hill, um, I was fortunate to be able to study with a queer cinema expert who really, I don't know, I had some really wonderful discussions with Gus, about Gus Van Sant. So I think for a number of different reasons, I'm just, I don't know. I am also kind of low-key obsessed with River Phoenix as a performer. I think he's one of the greatest actors of all Mm -hmm. time. And I'm just forever mm. and always very, very sad about his early demise. But I just think everything he's ever he was ever in, and just I don't know in general, I love his, I love his music as well. With his part of Alec as Attic, and he's just incredible. And he, I think this was his best performance. This might be the only thing I've actually seen him in. Really? Because I've never, I've never seen Stand by Me. Um, I've seen like a scene of it and that's about it but so i you know i was watching this um with my partner and we and he was like yeah i'm not used to seeing him at this age and i'm like oh for me like this is what i think of like him as like this is kind of my um version of him you know in my head yeah uh because i think i saw this movie for the first time in college i want to say so it's been you know, it's been like a solid like six plus years since I've seen it, uh, I believe. Which I don't even remember what I thought of it at the time, but the acting is very interesting and great, and especially because it is such like an interesting screenplay. <laughs> like, um, or maybe I shouldn't say screenplay because I don't know what the original looked like, but what well, ends up on screen because it is. Uh, for people who haven't seen it, I guess I should explain what this movie is about real quick. Um, it is loosely based on uh, Henry the Fourth and Henry the Fifth, the Shakespeare plays, um, which definitely comes across a lot in the dialogue and like just the the way that characters speak in the film is very interesting kind of combination of the kind of Shakespearean language and tone, uh, but with just like modern days. Uh, sensibilities and and language as well Um, but it's about um, these primarily these two friends who are uh, Mike and Scott or Mikey and Scotty uh, portrayed by River Phoenix and Keanu Reeves and they are you know uh, like sex workers Keanu Reeves's character came from money and is going to be coming into money again uh, whereas uh, River Phoenix's character Mike is comes from some sort of you know broken home background. It's something that he is very much grappling with throughout the film. 
Uh, his character has narcolepsy, which I'll talk about more, but it's like very prominent in the movie and in terms of his journey and like what's going on with him. He's consistently seen like falling asleep and dreaming throughout the entire film um, at moments of like stress or, uh, you know, emotional, just emotional moments, I would say. Um, but the majority of the movie is just kind of their lives and then his. Mike's search for his mother that kind of takes them all over the place. And meanwhile, Scotty is kind of waiting to come into money. And then at the end of the film, you know, they aren't able to locate uh, Mike's mother ever. But at the end of the film, it ends with two people dying, one of whom is Bob, who is like a street, like kind of like the leader, so to speak, of their kind of like street friends. And a sort of pseudo father figure, but also was in love with uh, Scott and also Scott's real father dies, which brings him into great fortune. And he leaves behind all of his uh, friends from the street and completely separates them himself from them. And, and then it ends with a uh, Mike on the street alone again, as he is at the beginning of the movie and passing out and being, taken in by a car and we don't really know what his fate is to be whether that was like a positive or negative thing at the end and there's other stuff that goes on but that's kind of the gist of it i would say yeah yeah absolutely so when did you first see this this movie uh i remember i first saw it when i i think i was 14 13 or 14 and yeah it was my my Emily had just gotten HBO and the, along with that we got a bunch of other channels with it and it was on it was on I think the Sundance channel and that would make sense <laughs> yeah and so I remember I had got my uh, my my family's really into pop culture and so I'd gotten this magazine of of people who had died too young um, my mom had gotten it for me cause she thought that I would find it interesting. Cause I don't know, I guess at that age I was really into death. I don't know. And so, um, uh. with that, she, she got that for me. And I remember I was really fascinated. I don't know. I think I was probably like 12 or 12 or 12 or 13 at the time. And I was really fascinated by the actor River Phoenix. Cause I'd always really liked Joaquin Phoenix. And at a young age, I'd seen the film, another Gus Van Sant film. Um, what the F was it called? Uh, it's with Joaquin Phoenix, uh, Nicole Kidman. Give me a second. It will come to me. Uh, crap. What is it called? Oh, To Die For, which is another film I really strongly okay. recommend. Mm -hmm. um, and so I'd seen him. I'd seen Joaquin Phoenix in that and I'd really liked him. And I, I had been fascinated by the fact that his brother had died so young. And so um, I saw the name River Phoenix. And I was immediately like, I have to watch this. And I like skipped cross country practice and watched this film and was just <laughs> so, so. That was the gayest thing you could have said. <laughs> uh, I was just so taken. As a formal, as a former middle school cross country uh, runner myself. Yeah. Yeah. I was just so taken away with the visuals of it that I actually ended up learning later. The director of photography had actually all those uh, time lapse shots of the skies in Idaho um mm -hmm. were all taken not as part of the film he brought his own film along uh because he knew he was going to be in idaho and the film wasn't working for producers and so the dp who was friends with gus van sant was like hey actually i i have this extra film that i'm getting developed i should have it in a few days let's take a look at it and see if we can add anything and i think that really became kind of the visual crux of the film were these time lapses mm -hmm. Which Well, it's interesting because I feel like that, like, I feel like a lot of the things that make this film work were not originally part of yes. it. Like, were not originally intended to. Like, one of the biggest ones that we absolutely have to talk about is the scene at the campfire. Oh, my God, yeah. <laughs> so, so the scene at the campfire where uh, Mike, you know, reveals his feelings to Scott about him and like it's the one kind of confirmation in the film that we get that Mike is gay and he is in love with Scott and Scott you know whether I don't know what his actual sexuality is but no matter what it actually is he you know denies Mike and says that he only sleeps with men for money 
um, and that two men can't love each other and River, or sorry, River, <laughs> and Mike says, no, you know, I think I, I love you and that's not for money. Like, I think you can love someone not for money. And, and that scene originally was, from what I was reading, was much shorter and River Phoenix, like, secretly rewrote it. Um, and then just, like, came and, like, discussed it with Keanu, I guess, before uh, presenting it to Gus Van Sant. It was basically like, hey, we're going to do this scene this way. I think it's really important that it's more explicit that he is gay and that I think that needs to be in the text and not just in the subtext. And we're going to film this scene last. It was the last thing they filmed. Mm-hmm. Like I, at, at River's insistence, which is really interesting to me. Yeah. I, I So, I, um, although I'm also a filmmaker, I come from a performance background. It's kind of how I got into filmmaking. And I remember reading about that scene that, and just being just like, wow, like as a performer, like, especially during that time period uh, where, I mean, it's even into today, it's not really, it's really difficult to be open. Uh, it's very, it's very difficult to be open. And I think that, that was just so incredible to as a performer to make that choice. And like even his agents, River Phoenix's agents and Keanu Reeves agents were like, this is going to destroy your career. Like this is going to really mess up your uh, career. Yeah. I remember reading a quote where Keanu was like, what am I a fucking politician? No, I'm an actor. <laughs> like, oh. yeah. like, I don't give a shit, which I thought was amazing. Yeah. That was so good. I agree. But that scene is, I, I, I was reading fuck i i can't find i don't think i can find the person's name quickly enough but i think it was in like a criterion collection um like interview or something with a critic i i don't know but anyways well there was a critic was saying about how that scene really saved the movie and was really necessary because without that kind of moment of like hey, when it's just the two of us and we're away from the rest of the world, like, I have these feelings and they're, like, lovely and important. He was basically saying that without that, this movie would portray, you know, homosexuality as, like, something that is forced on all of the characters, as, like, something, like, bad or damaging because they, they have all these scenes where they talk about you know, being assaulted or being, like, attacked or moments of being unsafe. and But with this scene, it also shows that, like, a different side, which I thought was, like, an interesting thing. And I, and I had to think about that for a minute. And I was like, I think I kind of agree that you did, you need this moment of, like, yeah, like, these people who are, like, sex workers and are maybe in abusive situations, like, but that it's not because of, like, the, like, gayness or queerness of them, like, that's also, like, a good, can be, like, a good and beautiful thing in their lives, which uh, is important in a different way. So that was just, like, an interesting... I can't... This movie would be very different without that, I think. I agree with that. Another thing, too, that I think a lot about this film and why, I mean, at a young age, you know, when I first watched it again, I can't remember. I think I, I think I was 13 because I remember it was the summer. It was the summer right before my sophomore year of high school. Yeah. So I would have been I would have been 13. So it was. Yeah. So I remember I was like at the time because of a lot of things going on in my personal life and me, me trying to figure things out about myself that I, I was very detached from a lot of stuff. Like I was very subconsciously just very detached from life in a lot of ways. And I just remember being so unbelievably attracted to this film because majority of the film is forced detachment as a means of survival, I think, for a lot of the sex workers mm-hmm. in the film. But also as as the condition that that he has, uh, that, that Mike has, mm-hmm. it forces him to be very detached from life. And he just has to kind of accept and go with the flow of things. And I think in a lot of ways, that can be a metaphor in some senses, uh, mm-hmm. with regards to his sexuality, but also I think, I think in a lot of ways as well, like thinking about that scene, it's one of the only scenes where he's the most present, and mm-hmm. both him and Keanu are the most present. That Keanu's character Scott isn't putting on an act of having fun as a form of being detached, mm-hmm. and he is the most awake, the most wide awake in the entire film, and the most focused, and the most clear 
as he states things. He's not wondering about things. He's not musing about things. There are no, you know, soliloquies, Shakespearean soliloquies. Mm -hmm. It's very direct, present, contemporary, like contemporary language that's spoken in that scene towards each other. And there's the most genuine embrace of the entire film with no sort of movie magic on it. Because I think a lot of the scenes that have to do with, with intimacy... I think I think Gus Van Sant does such an incredible job of showing the the lack of sincerity in the in it in that like the scene with oh god I love the scene with Udo oh Kier. god like the scenes where they're just <laughs> posing oh like, my god oh my god yeah because for a lot of the movie whenever they show like sex or something there's at least a couple scenes in particular that stick out where it's just them like in like not even trying to hide it like it's just them in like stills like posing in like these like kind of ridiculous and it's like no making no like sense of trying to act like this is just little clips it's like clearly they are standing posing in these scenes like like they are like in a museum or something and then we have this one scene at the campfire that's just the two of them it's just gentle um like River Phoenix, I don't think makes eye contact with like anyone during the entire film. Like he's always looking away. But you know, like it's this one sincere embrace at the end of it that's not, you know, it's just a night. Like it's just an intimate moment between two two people who care about each other. Um, yeah. So I, I I have to talk with the narcolepsy because I I can't not. <laughs> so okay. I for first of all, I was like, does he have narcolepsy or epilepsy during this? <laughs> Which was part of it. Um. So okay. So I think the first time I saw this movie, I hadn't been diagnosed yet because I honestly kind of forgot that was such a big part of it. So when the movie started with literally the dictionary definition of narcolepsy, I fucking laughed out loud so hard because one, I was like, well, that's very not that accurate um so but anyway so i don't really you know it's a movie i you know i don't expect it to be an accurate portrayal of narcolepsy it's i don't know if it's better or worse than the mr bean version of it but uh i honestly i don't but i was thinking a kind of like a deeper level about that part so in my own experiences you know and like reflecting on my i did reflect on my own experiences during watching this and in ways that it kind of did tell some emotional truths about the experiences I have had through his, even though I think it's a kind of like ridiculous version of narcolepsy that is not accurate. But, um, but still though, you know, having narcolepsy and especially when I had it less under control, it does put you in very vulnerable positions at times I mean, I went to Bloodfest, for instance, and I had to have uh, someone sit next to me and, like, watch me because I fell asleep at the back and I, like, couldn't leave. So I was just, like, laying down at the back of a concert sleeping while, like, someone sat next to me to, like, make sure no one fucked with me, you know? Um, Or, like, I've been... Like, the one... There's one scene that really stood out to me where he, when he's awake... You know, he asks um, Scott, like, how much money did you make off of me when I was sleeping? Like, implying that he, like, let people do stuff to him when he was sleeping. And that part, like, I almost had to pause it because I was like, ooh, that, because, you know, like, I've been in, uh, I'm not going to go into, like, a lot of detail, but, you know, like, I've been taken advantage of in relation to you know, people who took advantage of my condition. So it's, you know, and and one thing that they did get accurate is that when you have narcolepsy, when you fall asleep, you very quickly start dreaming. Um, And a lot of times you start dreaming, you know, before you fall asleep or like you're still kind of dreaming after you wake up and it can be very disorienting and, you know, and the dreams are usually very vivid and so that part, you know, because that's what we really see is he'll start falling asleep and he'll start having these images and these dreams when he's still awake and he's trying to, like, fight for it and he can't and he goes into this kind of dream, you know, and that kind of, like, disorientation and vulnerability. And there is some truth to, like, the. it's not really moments of stress. It's usually moments, like, when you have narcoleptic attacks, which, again, like... 
I'm not going to go into the whole like, well, cataplexy versus falling asleep and they're not the same, you know, but like, um, I'm not going to go into, I'm not, this isn't a lesson on narcolepsy, but like just irrelevant parts, but, um, it is true. There is some amount of truth to that. Like it's usually moments of like high emotional, like intensely like laughter or something will, will cause cataplectic attacks where your muscles lose all rigidity. So, um, you know, so there is some amount of truth to that, but I, I, you know, I did find that kind of narrative of like how that has put him into this very vulnerable position where he is, and where he does have this kind of disorientation and this fog to some extent over his life. Um, I found that very interesting and in some ways actually very relatable, even though the like specific details were obviously like absurd and it was very distracting towards me because I'm like, why is he shaking so much? Like, what's going on here? Like, why is this this happening? But, um, but yeah, so like, but the kind of like emotional elements of what it was trying to bring to the film, I actually did find, um, you know, in some ways kind of uh, meaningful and, and actually surprised me that I could relate to to some of uh, those experiences given, you know, what it's usually like to see some condition you have uh, portrayed on screen. Absolutely. Um, so, so yeah. Yeah, I, I, I love his hands. Uh, I, I loved watching his hands in those scenes. And that's something I'm, I'm actually really curious um, that... Uh, I guess, are you, have you been told when you go to sleep if your hands do similar movements as his hands did? Because that was one of the most prominent and oh, consistent no. things that I found were his hands shaking. No, that that bothered me so much. I'm like, why are his hands shaking? What is going on here? Like, no, mo- all of his physicality was completely unrelatable to me. It was, it kept distracting me because, well, I don't have severe... So when you have narcolepsy, the, like, whole kind of traditional, like, falling over thing, that's not from you falling asleep. That's from cataplexy. So that's your muscles losing rigidity. You don't necessarily fall asleep when that happens. Um, You could be awake and just, like, basically in, like, paralysis, you know, like. (laughs) um, And uh, I don't have really severe cataplexy, so I guess I can't totally speak to it. Like, I do have cataplectic attacks, but it's not so strong. It's not my whole body. the phys- I just fall, I mean, really the experience of having narcolepsy is it's not just like I suddenly like fall asleep out of nowhere. It's just like, wow, I suddenly feel like I haven't slept in three and a half days. And if I don't fall, if I don't go lay down and fall asleep soon, I'm going to lose it. Like I've fallen asleep standing up before, like when he's standing looking at that woman and he's like falling asleep on the sidewalk. I've like been there. <laughs> like I fell asleep in a meat slicer one time, but um yeah, but it it's not so sudden and it's not like it's not just like oh my god, I thought about my mom and now I, you know, at least not unless you have like the most extreme case of all time. Um so, you know, it's it's movie version for for sure. So the physicality really bothered me, but the kind of like emotional resonance of it rang rang accurate for me. Yeah, yeah. That's I, I that's actually just I don't know. It's so crazy how how this worked out in terms of um Yeah. Cuz I completely forgot. Like mm-hmm. when you said it, I was like, "Oh, I've seen that movie before." Yeah. Like, <laughs> I remember that. Like really beautiful. Like and the music's really interesting yeah. and like the sound. Like that's what I remembered of it mm-hmm. was was those kind of elements so that I was like, "Oh shit." Like <laughs> Yeah. I think that's so I'm so glad you brought up the music because that's another thing of why I think I liked it quite a bit. Um so growing up, I I listened to funny combination of things i listened to uh polka and i listened to <laughs> yeah um that and i listened to what is it called um like the the very old western songs and so the the, mm-hmm. the theme song throughout the film that we hear quite often it, i it's just when i think of that i think of childhood so i think that and with the the type of film that they use especially when going into his memories of everything being really sped up uh mm-hmm. i just found to be very i don't know i really resonated with and how i i think back on things and it, everything's a little hazy and everything's a little brighter and there's the distant sound of of i don't know 
the whistling, the the <laughs> the cow whistling, and and that kind of thing, and that type of older country uh, music. So, am I remembering correctly that the last song is "America the Beautiful" mm-hmm. over the last scene? Or am I okay? Yes, yeah, which I found to be so ironic. I loved it. I loved the irony of that song in that moment. Um, mm-hmm. I thought like it really is though, at least in my in my analysis of America and American culture. Just how, you know, generally speaking, people are pretty friendly, but they will steal the shoes off of your feet if you have a narcoleptic (laughs) moment. (laughs) So I think, I don't know, I thought that, and also just in general, like how, how Mike has gotten through life is generally through the kindness of strangers. That's how he's, I mean, the, the, the scene with Udo Kier, who happens to be this benevolent, this benevolent man who likes younger men which i thought to be very very and just really just wants someone to like him back for his all of his idiosyncrasies um ends up helping them move along their journey of trying to find his mother and then at the end this random stranger picks him up and kind of gently sets him in the car and drives off on this long face of a road so as he continues on this journey to try to find his mother so it's just going to be like a never-ending pursuit. I thought that was just a really nice symbol of Americana in a lot of ways. Right. Um, speaking about those flashbacks, I think those are filmed so beautifully. And like, yeah, just down to the film stock and like, the, uh, it was just the texture. I mean, obviously it's a flashback, so it's supposed to feel nice and welcome and inviting, but wow. Mm. That, yeah, I feel like in those moments you know a lot of that americana came out absolutely yeah absolutely very just yeah very pretty very pretty oh another thing that kind of reminds me of when he goes and visits his brother slash father spoilers sorry um (laughs) we are on all spoilers podcast i found that part a little confusing not not the literal scene, but the like actual what it was what the information we were getting about that was. I found that a little confusing. Um, yeah, but continue. Oh, just the scene where I I loved the moment where his brother is like, yeah, it's these paintings. Sometimes they don't pay me, so I don't send them the paintings. They're kind of like my friends. Like it's like having an audience. Or he says something along those lines, and. I just, I don't know what it was, but there's just something about that entire scene that was just so utterly just depressing and heartbreaking. Yet there is just something so poetic about that. I think like him and his brother are like jostling back and forth and then he, and then he goes to sleep and then he starts having that conversation with Scotty and Scotty is like trying, you can tell Scotty really cares for Mike and he, it's like, it's like, I thought Keanu Reeves' performance in that scene was the best in the entire film because you can see in his face how he's trying really hard to like not to to detach, but he can't detach because this is someone whom he really cares about. And even though he's being confronted with a lot of very uncomfortable stuff, he's he's just couldn't continues to listen and continues to observe it. And I just I don't know, I just I found that scene to be just so fascinating. I, yeah, I think I was starting to, like, lose attention during that part, which is odd. I want to just, because I I don't even remember the line that you're talking about, which I just watched the movie, like, not not an hour before we started recording. So I'm hearing you explain it. I'm like, oh, wow, that's really interesting. Like, that's very fascinating. And, like, it's interesting that they chose to include that for this, like, character that we didn't really need to know anything about. Like, we didn't have to. They could have just as easily had not had any kind of, like, depth there. But that's really interesting. Um, One thing I was kind of thinking about when you were saying that was about the sne- the, f- the two funerals scene. And, like, uh, Scott, like, sitting at his very, like, traditional, quiet, detached, not very emotional, um, you know, funeral. And then, like, looking over at the funeral for Bob, where Mike and everyone else are, like, screaming and, like, 
it's extremely emotional and raw and i was like damn that's what i want my funeral to be people jumping on my <laughs> fucking casket yelling my name like beating that. the shit out of each other <laughs> just beating the shit out of each other yelling my name in each other's faces and like uh but also like someone playing the banjo like it <laughs> um not banjo sorry they're playing like the accordion um it that was so interesting that scene and that kind of like juxtaposition of those two lives and like the raw emotionality even though it is like fucked up at the same time of one of the sides and then that like cold distance nothingness almost um on the other on the other side and him being just like so enraptured by that other side and like staring over the entire time was just like very interesting to me. Yes. Yeah, I, I definitely agree with that. I, I just love the I also love the canted angles of how they shot it. Of how mm-hmm. it was at it was at this like really nice canted angle that was continuously moving. Like I love how the camera was constantly moving to between those two scenes, which I think really helped I think with just kind of the inner tor- turmoil that probably that probably Scott was going through and that his desire to go back to his old life, but being so grounded in that scene. And I don't know, even just, even just the term grounded yet, there's a lot of grounding happening in that scene because it's a double funeral. I don't know. There, <laughs> there's a, there's a lot of, I don't know. And it's also, I think one of the, the most Shakespearean of all of the scenes. I was about to say, Oh, it's extremely was, so. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I felt that as well. Although also like kind of the interesting part of it is that, you know, he was looking back like there's so many things about his inclusion with that group. Like in in one way it's like, oh, the kind of wistfulness of that old life, but also he was like never really a part of it. Like he was, like he was, but he always had this other thing. Like he chose it, whereas other people did he not. He was cosplaying. Yeah, exactly. He was a god. There was like several moments where I kept thinking about SLC Punk uh, during it, which was partially just because there was a few scenes that like visually reminded me of it. Uh, But also I was just thinking like, turns out I was a fucking goddamn poser, like, or whatever. Like, um, you know, but he was, he was not ever a part of it. He never had to allow himself to question any of those, like any feelings. Like I, the entire time he he quote unquote like knew what he was doing and i don't know if he ever even gave him space gave himself space to think about how much of that life was truly like who he was and how much of it wasn't and i feel like in that scene where he's looking back at it that was kind of reflected in that of like him having never really given allowed himself to give any like true thought to that um was very interesting uh, to me to think about in that scene like of who is he actually and what are his actual feelings and can he even reach them yeah if he wanted to right i i found it so interesting my perspective on scott because when i first watched it when i was when i when i first watched it when i was a kid you know like 10 years literally like 10 years ago um i remember just finding the scott character to be just like such an attractive person and how playful he was and then as an adult um now that i've grown up and kind of lived a little and seen some things i guess i find him to be such an abhorrent character um i like that oh yeah absolutely Mm. i like the term that you used um aaron when you said uh cosplaying and i think to some extent when I, the, the the phrase that kept popping in my head is that he was a sex tourist um mm. just because I, I i he was literally there was a scene where they made money off of a bike and they they split it in half and i was like why the hell it's almost like he's stealing from mike to some extent because no matter what he'll always have a family to fall back on he'll always have a family to fall back on he will always have He'll always have his straightness to fall back on as well. And it's like, that isn't something that Mike can make the choice for, which I found to be very infuriating. I found. Yeah. Well, all of them. Yeah. I mean, that's shown constantly where he, to him, it's all just like a game. Like 
like you know i mean there's the one scene where he's like oh like where bob is like i mean it's a funny scene and it's a very shakespeare scene you know of the like oh stealing is my vocation like it's not wrong it's not a sin to like do your vocation but you know but there is something to that you know it's like well these other people are like stealing and doing these things to like or like having like they're doing these things to survive like and he's doing these things for his own entertainment like for for fun to like discover oh what would it be like if i were this kind of person what would it be like if i did this but he can at any moment just turn it off and go back and he does and the people who mistook him for someone who was real were very sorely disappointed whereas i don't think that Mike didn't seem surprised at all. You know, like, I don't think he, when when he left and, you know, he knew that was always going to be what happened. You know, like, he, I think from the, from the fire scene, from the, from the scene at the, you know, I think he appreciated the embrace and everything, but I think he knew at that point, like, I, I can never have this relationship I want to. And then, of course, that was just proven so true when they went and uh, Scott started hooking up with that one um, woman who he ended up marrying, I guess. Um, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's... Um, yeah. Damn Keanu. <laughs> well, yeah. Do we do we think Keanu, like, in the... Do we, do we see Scotty as, like, actually being, like, cut and dry straight? Or do we just, like... I feel like there could be some nuance in the terms of like, I guess if we're seeing as um, Scotty as someone who has the freedom to kind of, you know, be a sex tourist and have that um, cosplaying experience. So the freedom to do that, but essentially like he is kind of, you know, he stays confined in the kind of pattern he falls into. Like his dad dies, he takes on that wealth. Like he inherited he inherits all of that and then especially in the scene where you can at the the funeral scene where um you definitely see him like you really see the desire just like in his eyes and just like the sadness that he can't join that and it's is that it was the decision of like him saying um like two men can't two men can't love each other as in like it is not that it's impossible to happen but like it's just like from a societal perspective like I don't like do we see him as straight or like I think I um, do not but maybe not allowing himself to be from like a you know I think he's someone I think he's someone who's so okay I don't think he's straight personally I mean not that I'm saying that he doesn't I I mean he might be bi or whatever I'm not gonna like get into the specifics because I don't know but I don't think he is like cut and dry straight but I do think he is someone who can really easily say to himself and like uses it as like a tool of like I'm doing this thing for this reason and that's the narrative I'm creating so like oh I have sex for money and for fun and like, well, I only have sex for money, but I don't need the money. So why am I doing this? Well, I'm doing this because I think it'll be more impressive if I am debaucherous and then clean up and like I surprise everyone. You know, like he cares so much about like his image and controlling the and the performance and controlling the narrative that I think he uses all of those things as excuses to avoid any real um thought about himself and who he is beyond the roles that he's playing and so no i i personally i don't think he's cut and dry straight but i also don't imagine that he would ever allow himself to truly explore that side of him yeah, I think that's such a great point. And I feel I feel now like reflecting on what I said, I didn't I didn't I feel so bad I said he can fall back on his straightness and and I know that's not a very very But it's also like but it's also like real though. Yeah, and Yeah. It's I I completely agree mm-hmm. with you though, and I think that's a thing especially of someone of his class standing. I found class to be very interesting in this film and how it was portrayed and also just still still incredibly relevant. 
absolutely relevant just in that the number of conversations that I have that I've had with I guess extremely I guess this is a weird conversation track to go down but um with extremely wealthy people like people who are like you know very 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 wealthy you've never will never have to worry about working a job or anything like that and how conversations around like sexuality come into play and it's just it's just so fascinating and how it's well, there's like never knew bef- oh i was gonna say before just, he had all the oh go ahead sorry oh i was just gonna say like how there's just it, I, I i'm trying to think how to say this you go ahead and say what you're gonna say and i'll think of how i how i can okay uh, yeah bef- before he has all of the money yeah he can kind of do what he wants right because he doesn't have the responsibility yet. He doesn't have to take over his father's role. Right now he's in the like the prince, you know, he's in the literal like prince standpoint. And so um by which I mean the the like royalty class not <laughs> prince. Um but anyway, so he, you know, like there I think about the scene where they're getting like raided by the police and he turns it into a game and a show and it like cuz to him he knows that his class and his social standing protects him in that moment. Like other people are legitimately you know, they're like kind of having fun but like there is a legitimate threat to them and Mike is protected by his proximity but you also can tell it is like not a game to him and he's not that amused. Like you know, because, and Scott is just playing, like, he, like, reveals, you know, he, like, first he pull he's, like, they're mining sex, and then he, like, pulls the cover back so his head's revealed to the police, and he's, like, oh, whatever, and then he's just being cheeky and whatever, and then he pulls the blanket back to reveal River, and he keeps, like, touching his nipple, and, and River keeps smacking him away, and it's, like, funny, but also it's, sh- like, at that moment, like, he is so like what are you gonna do i'm untouchable i can be openly queer and like pretend and like openly whatever in this moment and like what are you gonna do about it but once he takes on and it's like almost like throwing it in their faces like ha 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 look at me what a what a delinquent son like but then once he actually once his father dies and he is put into this kind of place of responsibility or authority he like shuts that all down and he doesn't intentionally like he says it ahead of time like oh once that happens like i'm gonna leave all of this behind and i think in that moment of the funeral he's realizing like that's not really how things work like you can't actually turn it on and off that hard like it's always going to bleed over like like your richness bled over into your into your fake poor man's life and your your just your queerness and your other like the other less socially desirable aspects of you are going to bleed over into your rich man life. Like you can't actually switch it, things on and off about yourself as cleanly as you're trying to. Yes. Yeah, no, no. And and that's okay. Good. Now, now I feel like I can verbalize. So I, yes, 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 yes. All of that. And also like, it's a thing of, Oh, I, I remember a conversation I once had with someone who comes from a very wealthy background and it basically like, that's not an option. I remember like word for word, that's, that's what he said is, oh, well, that, I mean, that's not an option. Like in the sense of it's not, a, it's not, I found it really interesting that a person that this person said that the sex, that his sexuality is of queer, of being queer is not an option that he found it to be like how a lot of people of like higher stature and of that type of class background see it as something like an option but also kind of how how in this film it's so wonderfully portrayed by the Scotty character as exactly that as an option, which I, I, I like thinking about, wow, like that's actually a really, really amazing, amazing, I think just amazing. An option, but also an option that he would lose yeah. everything, you know, like, yes. I mean, before he has the safety of knowing when I turn 21, I'm going to get this money and then I don't have to live this way. Um, you know, I can stop being uh, living on the streets and whatever. But once he actually has that to to then he can't go back without giving all of that up, you know. So I, I you know, I my parents, I'm not like from like a fantastically wealthy family but i'm certain my parents are certainly like well off um and i know that like their kind of perspective on queerness was always like it's fine but not 
like it's fine for other people but not for our family like um like they had like they knew people who were gay and were friendly with people who were gay but like it was always like uh yeah but my kids will be straight and have babies and do whatever like you know that's i remember one time my mom it was my birthday the day before my birthday my boyfriend at the time and i had gone up to like celebrate and my family were all drunk when we got there and i like mentioned offhand about one of my friends like dating a woman like one of my female friends dating a woman now and my mom drunkenly goes oh don't you go pulling that shit and then uh pat she's like i want grandkids and then pat's my boyfriend on the shoulder and straight up said this one has sperm and then i was like oh my god and then like a few minutes later you could tell that like what everything that she had just said had like processed in her drunken brain and then she goes oh i guess you could always adopt though and i was like okay but yeah it was a lot it was a lot a lot you know but that really was always kind of the perspective like it always kind of feels like oh if i am going to do this and like you have to give up everything else and like that kind of like class safety is very powerful <laughs> when you're grow up in it and are cosplaying in it in something else you know i think most people who grow up with money who cosplay as something else like always end up falling back on the okay but that was cute and nice but i actually don't want the hardships of that and yeah i i, I find just yeah I, I i find that just thinking about about that i don't know it's like i guess i hadn't i hadn't really thought as in depth or gone as in depth with the class analysis of the film but i think having this conversation with you both has kind of made me think more about that and just how I think it was really brilliantly done. And I think it was very accurately and brilliantly done. And also it's making me want to think more about how, how class is further portrayed in actual like Shakespearean tragedies. Because I mean, I mean, I know this is a different era, but class issues I think are often portrayed in dramas in quite similar ways. So I'd be interested to see kind of how similar it is actually to the adaptation and what is actually done with the was it the Henry the Fourth, like how the Henry the Fourth or Henry the Fifth character is portrayed in terms of class? Okay, so yeah, it is Henry the Fourth and Fifth though, which I've never read those. Have you? No, I know nothing about them. I I just was guessing while watching this. I'm like, I wonder if that was the Shakespeare part of it. Like, I think it's pretty explicit. Not pretty explicit, but you can. Um. I don't know. It's like I think, in ter in terms of reviews of Keanu Reeves's acting in other projects, um, they kind of dig on, you know, his I guess line delivery. But this I think actually lends really well because his like he doesn't like lean into it. Like he he's just himself, but saying these lines, and so it's that kind of seamless transition of kind of the dialogue was insane to realize be like oh okay this must be the shakespeare part i guess it was so funny because the juxtaposition between like the shakespeare kind of part and like structure like literal sentence structure and whatever but then being like fuck and just like yelling and like <laughs> which not that that isn't ever in shakespeare you know but like it was just so funny because it would just like oscillate between just like oh this is Shakespeare, but also having these like Bill and very Bill and Ted moments. Like it <laughs> right. was, um, it was fascinating. I actually think this is one of Keanu's best roles, like acting performance wise. Mm -hmm. Like one of them, it's he makes it's so fascinating because I feel like one thing about Keanu is that most people would argue he's like an extremely not naturalistic actor and it's funny right. that in this role where the dialogue is so not naturalistic he sounds the most naturalistic that i ever remember seeing him it's like this is right. just like just written like, oh, yeah you're like yeah this is how i imagine counter is like in real life you know like, right like it's not um yeah it's not like insane that he would just talk like this it's like oh yeah that's believable Yes, mm -hmm. I would. I, um, that's so funny you say that because I'd have to agree. Out of everything I've ever seen him, other than when he plays, 
when he plays an alternative version of himself and always be my maybe which is on netflix yeah other than yeah. that film this is the best performance i've ever seen him <laughs> not even bill and ted no no he's good in bill and ted but <laughs> he's good it's a totally he's different type of yes yes he's so good in this yes but yeah this he was played- one of the few times with like shakespeare where i wasn't like ugh the whole time especially like a film adaptation which is insane because then that doesn't mean it like the lines were delivered like any differently it was definitely just this the context of the film like Baz Luhrmann could never well because like he's done like Shakespeare and I feel like he's not as good at it when it's like this is a Shakespeare movie then he isn't this like yeah I don't Absolutely. Like, yeah. I, I feel like I've seen personally at least, yeah. I, I've I feel like I've seen him in quite a few like no, I guess I've seen him only in like two Shakespeare adaptations, Keanu Reeves, and he's I, I again like I just I feel awful because I, I really, really, really like Keanu Reeves a lot and this is not against him as a performer in any way because he is his own he is his own type of performer, which is amazing. But in terms of the types of performances I like to see, I do have to say that his best Shakespearean performance is in this. And right. I, it is. I think he's absolutely excellent. Um, <laughs> excellent. No, I think he's absolutely excellent <laughs> in this. <Excellent>. Yeah. <laughs> but. Oh my gosh, no. Yeah, he's well, amazing. Do, yeah. do you have any, is there anything about the film that you wanted to cover that we haven't already? Then you wanted to make sure we get to? I think other than just, again, my deep love of new queer cinema in the 90s. I just love 90s queer cinema. It just everything about that and Gus Van Sant and Only Cowgirls Get the Blues. You should totally check it out if you haven't seen it already. Another Gus I Van Sant. I haven't. I should watch it. Oh, it's excellent. It's um, Keanu Reeves. Isn't that with, uh, isn't that with um, the younger sister? Isn't, that, isn't Rain? Yes. Phoenix in that one? Yes. As is Keanu. Keanu has a, has a bit part in it. And he's great. It's I loved it. It's just it's one of those '90s films. But something I do have to say about this film in general that I did learn uh, in one of my classes, or uh, is that it really opened the door for there being more uh, queer narratives in the mainstream because they because mm-hmm. Gus Van Sant was able to get such big name actors at the time that were which oh my gosh okay speaking of like have you read the wikipedia page for this movie i don't think so it goes oh my gosh it's so amazing it goes into such explicit detail like it's like and then kiana had to get on his like very specific motorcycle to drive down to go see um river phoenix yeah, he, he they tried to get motorcycle from Canada to Florida to go hand deliver the script to River to read it together or something. Okay, to, like, yeah, get him be- to do the film because like he was having trouble. Gus Van Sant was having trouble getting financing, and then he ended up getting financing eventually because uh, Drugstore Cowboy was like such a like did well. So then, anyways, though, but he had sent the script to the agents for. Keanu and River, and River's agent wouldn't even give it to River, and it got through to Keanu, he agreed to do it, and so uh, I think it was Gus Van Zandt was just like, well, hey, do you think you could get River on board? And they were, like, familiar with each other, like, he, Keanu, it literally says that I think in the Wikipedia, it's like, they were no strangers to, like, the Phoenix family, because he was in this, uh, this project with Joaquin, and whatever, so he goes down, and he, like, gets him to do it and at first River's like I'll, yeah I want to be Scott and he's like well I'm already Scott so like will you be the edgier like Mike and then he's like okay yeah and so then they agreed and uh, they decided to do it as like a favor for each other <laughs> it's like very interesting and it like really speaks to the dynamic that the two of them have and then like it also I was reading that like um you know, Gus Van Sant had, what book was it? Um, he had them read, or told, I gave them this book, City of Night by John Reckie, Reckie, I'm not trying to say it. Um, like, here, learn about, like, street hustlers this way. And, like, Keanu read it, was like, oh, that was very helpful. And River Phoenix was like, I read one paragraph of it, and then I was like, nah, fuck this. And just, like, pulled from his own experiences, because River Phoenix is a very strange life. Um, so that was just like very interesting to me. Um, 
I find that I find that so interesting. So I found I'll, I'll send this to you both, and I don't I don't know if you have a, a way of sending sending this uh, out uh, to who, the audience or whomever listens to this. But there's a senses of cinema essay that I have again I haven't read this essay I think in like seven years or something million years, and I they they quote a saying that Scott is gay for cash, whereas Mike is white trash queer, and. I think that's, I mean, I, I think that is, again, getting into the class differences between the two. I think that's, those are both very good, like not very good. Cause I don't like terms like that, but I thought, I thought that that's a really good analysis of both of their characters. And I don't know. I, I think that it's interesting for, I, I think it's just interesting for there to be such a, such a dynamic between the two. And yet then hearing what you just told me, cause I didn't know that about Keanu Reeves like reading any sort of book or, or Van Sant having him read any sort of book about hustlers. Cause like as an actor, like reading a book, isn't going to get you into the part. Like it's just not going to get you into that type of part, but it's just funny because Keanu Reeves character, of course would read a book to better understand hustling. So like, well, <laughs> also another kind of, yeah, that is true. It is very interesting about like how those two characters are like the one who's more detached to write a book and the one who's like the other one is like, now nah, I'm going to pull from my real life experiences. Um, that is really fascinating. But also what's another interesting part about that book was, I guess, what I was reading was Gus Van Sant had originally started the screenplay like a while before and then scrapped it and was like, I can't do as good of a job at portraying. The phrase kept being street hustlers, which is why I'm using the, the that turn of phrase, because that's what they kept using in the article. Um, being like, I can't portray it as well as this guy portrays it in this book, so like I'm not even going to finish it. And then like went back to it. And then I guess originally it seemed like these, like there was almost like two different versions of this movie. One that was like just Scott and one that was like just Mike. And then ended up having the decision to like do them kind of like spliced together, which is also really interesting because I think they really need each other to work off of. Absolutely. And I just, Oh man, you saying that I don't, I don't know why, but I just get very nervous that someone is ever going to try to readapt this film or is ever trying going to try. Mm -hmm. I just, I would lose it. Yeah. I would like protest. Media panic. <laughs> like, no, please don't read this movie. Yeah, just because it's perfect the way it is. And... Don't put Timothy Chalamet in it, please. <laughs> no. Oh, no. Oh, my God. Please don't get me started on Timothy Chalamet. I will scream. <laughs> <laughs> but you know that's what would happen if they made it right now. I want to. Uh, okay, but if they did, which I hope they don't. Arpad as Scott, I feel like that would be what they do if they did. Yeah, yeah he's way too old. Oh, he's way right. too like, old for it. But yeah, but like, oh. if, like if they did it now, they would do that. Like, I want no gay. If they're gonna redo it, they have to wait until Robert Pattinson gets old and then he can play. So he mom. can be Udo. <laughs> oh God, be that. <laughs> So he could be Bob, but that's amazing. Oh too. no, he would be really good as no, Bob. It'd be perfect. Yeah, I love our pads. I will literally watch our pads in anything. I think he's such an incredible actor. I think he, I think he's one of the best actors of our generation. And so for him to play Bob, I would, so I would watch a film only if Robert Pattinson played all of the roles. He would, he would <laughs> go method and just be drunk and like on shit the whole time. <laughs> Yes. And like they wouldn't even give him a script. Like he will refuse it and just be in the scene. Yes. Oh good. Well, hey, I mean River Phoenix in some ways just refused the script. It's like, nah, I'm gonna do this thing instead. <laughs> so <laughs> oh, uh, oh my gosh. Well, thank you so much for coming and talking about this this movie with us. We really appreciate appreciate it yes thank you for having me and i this is such a fun and wonderful and i've i've learned i don't know i've discovered new things about this film and now i kind of want to rewatch it so thank you for that, appreciate <laughs> that. of course um do you want you don't have to but if you want to plug your social media or if you have anything else you want to plug please feel free to go ahead oh sure uh let's see i'm not really on the social media other than you can follow me on twitter at uh low culture savant it's l-o-w-c-u-l-t-u-r no e s-a-v-a-n-t um and that's for my twitter i'm not on uh i'm not on a public facebook or instagram um and if you're interested in watching any of my work uh feel free to 
go to Amazon Prime and you can watch two seasons of my web series, Hashtag Milkor. So enjoy. <laughs> oh, yeah. Uh, Aaron, where can people find you on the internet? Um, You can find me at Aaron with an underscore A on Twitter and Instagram. And before, I just want to, I just have to, none of us acknowledge kind of the adult store nudie mag, like, cover boy scene that was like oh that, okay yeah no I you're right we shit. can't uh you're right I we can't end shit. it yeah uh, we have to talk about that <laughs> and river in that like pose and just joaquin i mean those are that's those are our twins our kids america that, that was fascinating also i was reading about how they literally did that because they like had them stand behind like it was all done with like actual like practical, which I thought was really interesting. Oh like it was just... <laughs> so that's amazing. Um, Something that yeah. every time I watched that, even at a young, it was one of my first times I think I, I became cognizant of how film works because they had to super, they had to impose superimpose all those images together, and mm-hmm. so they literally physically cut it and put it together. And so I found it's so funny if you watch really closely, you can actually see you can see the ISO or you can see the buzz of the film. It's so much like the, the grain in the film is so much harsher there because of the amount of layers of film mm-hmm. they have to stack. So go back and rewatch that and look at, just look at that little part and really pay attention to the grain because it's, it's insane. It's like a party. It's like a, it's like a dance party on the screen and it's great. Uh-huh. I, I just realized there's another part I want to talk about real quick yeah. before we get off. Mm-hmm. And that is the part where they um, are all kind of sharing their stories about their first. Yes. Uh, oh my God. Oh. Their first oh. time. And it's, yeah. Well, one thing when I was watching that, cause I read that when, so when Gus Van Sant was originally trying to get the movie made and was having trouble getting funding or anyone to be in it, he almost just made the movie with like actual street kids. Mm-hmm. And I was, when I watched it, I was like, are these actual street kids? Because it feels like these are like almost like too genuine of stories right. for me to like feel like these are actors. It felt like mm-hmm. documentary interviews, you know, like mm-hmm. it had a very documentary feel mm-hmm. that part of that scene. And I tried to look it up, but like, I didn't, I didn't look that, I didn't have that much time. So I didn't look that hard, but it did kind of seem like the, those actors were like only in Gus Van Sant movies so it is like and it does seem like Gus Van Sant just like I don't know everything I was reading about it kind of felt like uh I was like looking too hard into his life because it was like right he just like he just like knew all these street kids and I'm like why do you know these street kids Gus Van Sant I was like when they say he's gathering and collecting material (laughs) for this film does that mean were they were there fluids like I don't know (laughs) yeah i was like yeah exactly like um and then i guess we also should at least like i mean i feel like he's so famous that i didn't feel like it needs to be mentioned but like obviously this is actually made by someone who like is gay and you know Mm -hmm. so there's always that kind of uh you know addition to it but yeah what i was reading i was like hmm it's really interesting that you have such a good relationship with all of these uh again i'm using the turn of phrase that was in what i was reading last month they kept they kept saying street kids and i'm like okay interesting but so those parts did feel very like genuine i mean like they felt like that's how someone would tell those stories and like that was very like ooh, like oof, you know like yeah yes i was yeah, so I, some some random fact that I that I randomly know is that there was a lot of drug use on set, and um, I know in particular, like I used to, again, this is my embarrassing admission right now, but uh, growing up, I was a huge Red Hot Chili Peppers fan. So seeing Flea in this, mm-hmm. seeing Flea, like I remember yeah. just loving it, seeing Flea on screen, like thirteen year old me being like, oh my god, it's Flea. Um, but <laughs> but uh, it. He he really struggled. I know that he really struggled with drugs, and I know a couple, I, I, at least one or two of the actors who were in it, um, unfortunately, uh, passed away a year or two after filming uh, from from overdoses. And so, again, this is just yeah. I know obviously, obviously River, and then also the the other the guy who River's character didn't like. Yeah, I know he did as well. Um, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it did. It felt like these, it felt like the actors in this movie were, for the most part, whether or not it's true, they felt like they came from the the places that these characters came from. Mm-hmm. 
you know, like they felt very like lived experienced in the role to me. Very much so. Very much so. Which I think adds again, just something that I think adds to the kind of, for me at least, the ephemeral feel of it. And that mm-hmm. just something about this film, it's not like any other film and that there's a lot of authenticity to even the performances, but also to the narrative that's presented, which I just, I really appreciate. I really, really appreciate. Yeah. Okay. So now that we've actually fit, oh, go ahead. Oh, we haven't actually, one, we're never going to actually. Just one little last thing. Um, I was working on a project a few years ago and there's just this photographer that really like, the imagery really invokes like this whole kind of Americana like feel of this film. Her name's Joanne Walters. Maybe in the description we'll add like her website. I don't know. Real great. That's all. Oh, oh, oh. excellent. Okay. Excellent. Yeah. Are you sure we don't have another ending because we could put Return of the I'm King sorry. like up for no, no, no. I'm just teasing myself more than anything. Um, Okay, so you can find me on Twitter at Epsilina, E-P-S-I-L-I-N-A. I'm Felix Kingsley. You can find this podcast on Twitter at Queers on Film. Uh, if you want to be part of the podcast, feel free to hit us up on Twitter or email us at queersonfilmpod at gmail.com. Anyone can guest. You don't have to be, you don't need clout to be on this show. Um, we do have a Patreon. It's patreon.com slash queersonfilm. We'll have some fun stuff up there. Like we're going to be doing a Yuri on Ice uh, podcast, mini podcast with Aaron, Oscar, and I. Uh, I'm going to be writing some fan fiction. It's going to be a good time. And you can find uh, our theme. And the theme music is by uh, Haley Minickle. You can find their music at bombasticdreampussy.bandcamp.com or follow them on Twitter at bombasticdreampussy. Just remove all the vowels. Uh, they fucking rule. So thank you so much for listening and we'll have we'll be here next time with Jennifer's body, which I'm finally going to watch for the very first time. Uh, I'm stoked. Okay, see you then. Bye. Bye.